Okay, so we left, uh, I mean, the three people last year, I think, uh, that we discussed last week have a, uh, represented an interesting uh, range with C.L.R. James as the, as the writer and revolutionary, if you like, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, the intellectual who became a revolutionary, and Arthur Lewis, the, uh, the academic who, who remained one all his life. I, I forgot to tell you an anecdote. Uh, Arthur Lewis was the principal of the University College of the West Indies in Barbados in the 60s. CLR was always broke. I mean, uh, he never paid any attention to where the money was coming from, which I always thought for a revolutionary was a big mistake. So he applied for a research fellowship at the University College of the West Indies, and Arthur Lewis was recorded as having said, I'm not going to appoint that pamphleteer. So we'll see what the world makes of C.L.R. James and uh, Arthur Lewis, respectively, in history. Anyway, so if you recall, the W.B. Du Bois uh, argument about the color line was very much concerned with the specificity of America. I like to think of South Africa as the America of Africa. And uh, many South Africans actually feel themselves to be very separate from uh, Africa. And, but it wasn't always so. I mean, as you know, that uh, South Africa is also, especially in the struggle against apartheid, been very much part of uh, Africa. So today I want to talk about Pan-Africanism. And eventually, uh, when we reach the end of the course, will be in a position to consider South Africa's relationship to Africa's future, taken as a whole. I mentioned that Alexander Cromwell, uh, an American black from the 19th century who spent a lot of his time in Liberia, uh, is credited with having come up with this term Pan-Africanism. It's essentially the view that all people of African descent conceived of as being black descent uh, have a common interest. And in the first half of the 20th century, the Pan-African movement was by far the largest and most inclusive and heterogeneous movement in the world. It included people organized by European colonialism of various kinds, British, Portuguese, Spanish, French, German, at first. It included a very wide range of people, languages, uh, orientations. And uh, it was united by a single premise that the whites had stolen control of uh, Africans' land and all Africans uh, had an interest in combining to restore African ownership of the land, which could only be achieved by a concerted anti-colonial revolution. And I still believe that the most powerful expression of that anti-colonial revolution is Gandhi's life work in general, and the book by Fanon that we'll be discussing on Wednesday, The Wretched of the Earth, which 
was written from the depths of the Algerian War of Independence in 1959. Uh, he was a, a Caribbean uh, uh, national who, who a psychiatrist who, who works in hospitals uh, mending the uh, mentally injured in what was effectively a genocide. A million Algerians killed by the French, which the French for some reason were never held accountable for. So, this is the general concept. But today, I want to focus on James and the idea of a revolution in Africa. I've already told you that he wrote the first history of the, the Fourth International, the Trotskyist movement, a book called World Revolution in 1936, in his short stay in Britain. He then produced the Black Jacobins in 1938, and as a spin-off from the Black Jacobins, the history of the Haitian Revolution, he produced a small book called The History of Negro Revolt in the same year, 1938. In 1938, James went to America and stayed there for 15 years. This book has been Republished uh, with a new title, The History of Pan African Revolt, edited by the New York based uh, black scholar Robin Kelly. Probably the most impressive figure in the Pan Africanist movement between the wars was uh, Marcus Garvey. Uh, Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican who's built his movement in the United States. His movement was called the United Negro Improvement Association, UNIA. It attracted huge support. But Garvey was not, uh, like Du Bois and Fanon and James, a left-wing African <coughs> revolutionary. He was a right-wing African revolutionary. He kind of inverted the symbols of imperial power and claimed that Africans, that black people, could uh, produce the same. So he walked around with a hat with plumes on, like a British uh, colonial governor. Uh, he organized marches, which would not have disgraced Hitler or Mussolini in their organization or, or symbolism. The leading transatlantic shipper at the time was called the White Star Line of Cunard, so he founded the Black Star Line and with the idea that the New World uh, people of African descent would uh, emigrate back to Africa. And because of its independence from colonial rule and history, Ethiopia was taken as the main uh, place for this, whether the Ethiopians liked it or not. Just as Liberia was chosen earlier, uh, by the Americans for similar purposes. I mean, like Al Capone, the American government got Marcus Garvey on tax fraud. I mean, they, they imprisoned him uh, for, I mean, quite certainly on spurious grounds, but he, he came to a sorry end and his movement did not actually succeed, but it was a major feature of the interwar period and it brought for a time great hope to black people in North America. I mean, you know, James 
and found people like that thought that Marcus Garvey was a clown. But uh, now, you know, Garvey's place in history has been revised, and the fact that he's not a standard left-wing revolutionary uh, does not detract from the enormous significance of what he achieved in, in terms of mobilizing large numbers of his people. So this is the context for the history of Negro revolt. It's uh, James starts with the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s, and he takes it up to the 1930s when he's. So what he looks at first is New World slave rebellions. After the Haitian Revolution, he looks at rebellions in the southern United States in the 1820s, 1830s. He then devotes a large amount of time to the American Civil War and what actually happened there. And he concludes, you know, reasonably enough, that in the 19th century, the main action for revolutionary activity by black people was in the New World, not in Africa. But his claim, based on a survey of uh, events since the turn of the century, remember, just to get this in your head, that although uh, some European incursions into Africa took place earlier, the Berlin Conference of 1884, which is widely considered to be the time when the Europeans agreed to divide Africa amongst themselves as colonial powers, unleashed a colonial invasion, if you like, which uh, only succeeded in uh, dividing Africa between the colonial powers in around 1900. Some areas had suffered white settlement and white mines and so on for earlier than that. And as I said, Ethiopia escaped to a large extent until the Italians invaded in, 19, uh, in the 1930s. But the point to remember is that colonialism as the dominant social form in Africa lasted only six decades. I mean, most African countries were independent by the 1960s, and most of them were not under colonial domination before 1900. So the colonial period is a terribly short period in, in African history. And you have to ask yourself, why do we divide African history into uh, pre-colonial, colonial, post-colonial. Post Take a country like Nigeria, which today accounts for one in six Africans living on the continent. I mean, it's absurd to describe that 60-year window as the defining feature of, of Nigerian history, which goes back, you know, a millennium at least, or more. These are questions that we need to consider and will uh, uh, by the end. So what, what James did, I mean James's argument, which I've mentioned already, is that in the 20th century Africa became the revolutionary focus of black activity, whereas previously it had been the new world. So his aim is to is to understand all this. Now we you know this is a guy who was sitting in Trinidad until 1932, who, by his own confession, never had any idea you know, that revolution might involve fighting, 
had no idea that there were uh, sophisticated intellectual histories of revolution in India, China, and other places. Uh, and yet, in 1938, he's making the confident prediction that Africans will uh, become independent sooner than most people think, which at the time was everybody, Africans and Europeans, no Africans, no Europeans, thought that colonial empire could be disturbed that quickly in the 1930s. Well, obviously, the Second World War played a major part in that. I mean, the Japanese destruction of Britain's Asian empire uh, being the most uh, prominent amongst it. But also, I mean, the Second World War revolutionized citizen armies everywhere. I mean, you know, the, uh, not just, you know, the American GIs who invaded Europe, but the vast uh, Russian armies that took on the bulk of Hitler's army, uh, the African soldiers who served in the Second World were themselves uh, made militant by the experience of the war. In places like the Gold Coast, which became Ghana, the soldiers basically organized large-scale demonstrations and threatened to bring down uh, the country. In fact, uh, the colonial powers from the 1930s realized that they couldn't hold on to Africa for long. I mean, the Popular Fronts in France uh, organized uh, plans for decolonization in 1935, the Belgian government in the Congo, uh, the same in 1940, and in, uh, after 1945, the British in Kenya, in, in Ghana, and so on, realized that they had to build uh, welfare states that served the interests of all Africans, or they'd have to get out. I mean, the settlers of Southern Africa resisted this development and lasted longer than most places, but you should not conceive of this as the, uh, the normal African experience. So James's argument, which I think I've already mentioned, was that Africa is potentially a center of revolution because in many places, capitalist exploitation is combined with racial domination. And these two things taken together are decisive, he said. And he pointed out there were lots of rebellions. I mean, there were millennium movements in the Congo, uh, people who, who, who thought the Second Coming would deliver them from colonial rule. He wasn't interested in them particularly. He was interested in the places where an advanced sector of capitalism was combined with a particularly acute form of racial domination. And so he looked at the docks and railways in West Africa, in Ghana in particular. He looked, of course, at the miners in Johannesburg. There's a, a whole chapter in this book on, on South Africa uh, as one of the key places where this is building up. To my astonishment, he even refers to the Abba riots. Now, I only heard about the Abba riots in eastern Nigeria in the 1970s when feminist historians unearthed uh, uh, a movement of women, uh, oil palm producers. This is, these are the people who won the main centers for producing the oil, the soap, uh, that kept Unilever, one of the major 
uh, transnational corporations of the period, and even still, and these women rose up, and, and you know, James is saying, just because they're not organized, I mean, they are most of them peasant producers, they're not organized on capitalist plantations, but supplying oil to the industrial machine of the West is about as close as you can get to being central to capitalist accumulation. And not only that, I mean, these women organized themselves and, 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 and acted independently of the men. And, of course, eventually were subverted by the men. The British men who were the colonial uh, rulers and, and some of the uh, local Igbo who, who weren't so keen on the women having this degree of revolutionary independence. So, I mean, the question is, where did James get all this stuff? I mean, I, I'm a professional West Africanist, and I had to be told by feminist historians in the 70s that all this happened, which had been basically brushed under the carpet like a lot else. How did James know it in 1938? And the answer is, George Padmore. George Padmore was his pseudonym. I mean, at, at that time, left-wingers often took on pseudonyms as a way of trying to avoid assassination and cover up their tracks and prevent their families from being vulnerable and so on. Now, as I mentioned, James in the 1930s was a Trotskyite. And uh, George Padmore was a Stalinist. In fact, he was in charge of the black question for the Comintern, which was Moscow's uh, supreme uh, uh, Politburo. So he, you know, he lived in, in Moscow in the early 30s. And at one point in Stalin's maneuvers between the British and the French and the Germans and the Japanese, at one point uh, Stalin issued the, uh, the command, you know, that from now on, the good people are the British and the French, and the bad people are the Germans and the Japanese. So, uh, Padmore said, you've got to be joking. I mean, these people are our colonial oppressors. You're not going to get black people, you know, to sign up uh, how great the British and the French are. So he resigned. The thing that's even amazing, given how many people lost their lives in Stalin's hands at the time, is he left Moscow with his life intact. And he came back to London. Now, I mean, James knew that George Padmore was a Stalinist, and he was extremely wary about it, but they met at a cocktail party in London, and James took one look at him and said, you're Malcolm Nurse. Uh, Malcolm Nurse was his proper name. James and Nurse had been swimming in the river as eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, living in the same village in Trinidad, and, and James had never known, you know, this was his boyfriend friend, so they patched it all up. But the thing is that Padmore had acquired massive documentation of the black struggle all over the place, and had brought a good deal of it back to London. This is where James got the material for writing the history of Negro Revolt. And in fact, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Padmore and James formed the International African Service Bureau. 
involving Marcus Garvey's widow, uh, Amy Ashford Garvey, Joe Kenyatta, and a number of others. They basically worked for the anti-colonial revolution in Africa. So this is uh, it's really quite an amazing book, and uh, it's very short, so your grey self will not be unusually stressed by having to read it. It's also a book that was out of circulation for many, many decades. Now, in the remainder of this lecture, I want to talk about James on revolution and on an African revolution in particular. And I want to try and bring it up to uh, the question of whether we live in revolutionary times or not. And, and, and in particular, what the events in uh, North Africa and the Middle East that go by the name of the Arab Spring mean for Africans in general and for the world. Now, I've mentioned before, but I may as well repeat it because the people here are not always the same, that just before James died in 1989, he and I watched uh, the events of Tiananmen Square in Beijing together on television, the time when uh, the Chinese sent in the army to put down a student protest at the time of an international meeting. And with the whole of the world's uh, cameras on the place, uh, a line of tanks came into Tiananmen Square, and one guy kind of leapt out and kind of stood in front of ones and did this. And the, and the tank kind of tried to get around him, and he kind of stepped over and did it again. Then eventually, of course, he was grabbed. But I mean, it was just a tremendous, I mean, such a, an extraordinary symbol. And James said to me, he said, Chinese will put this down easily. I mean, it's not a threat to them. But the Russians won't hold on to Eastern Europe after this. And this was April uh, 1989. And in uh, November 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. And James was open to this possibility because from the 1960s and 70s, he'd been arguing that there were only two world revolutions left. The second Russian Revolution and the second American Revolution. So, and he imagined that they would have to be in that order. I mean, he believed that Stalinism had to collapse before the world could move to a position where America collapsed and with it the world order that is essentially an American plaything at this time. In the 70s, he was very, very interested in revolts against uh, Soviet rule or movements like the Solidarity Movement of Lech Walesa in uh, uh, Poland. James wrote some really quite remarkable things uh, in the 50s and 60s, linking the resistance to the Soviet Empire to uh, independence movements in Africa, and to the civil rights movement in the United States. He's got one uh, brilliant essay in which he compares from the period 1956 to 57, uh, uh, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in uh, the southern United States, uh, the Hungarian revolt that was put down very brutally uh, by the Soviet army, and Ghana's independence, which was the first in 
black Africa. So this is the Trotskyist uh, inheritance. The Trotskyist, in case you uh, didn't know, I mean, I mean, the Stalinists from about 1929 argued that you could have socialism in one country. They essentially uh, embraced a model of national socialism, which meant that the world society was not intrinsic to the, the problem of building socialism. And that allowed Stalin to be quite opportunistic in his foreign relations. Uh, but Trotsky argued, on the other hand, that, uh, that the world system as a whole uh, uh, would be brought down, you know, in, in a coordinated movement making most parts of the world. And that this would most likely take place in a war, a world war. So, James was fascinated by revolutions. He talks about them all the time. I spent two or three years with him at the end of his life. I mean, you know, he would read a, a, a new book on uh, Danson, the French revolutionary, just come out. And he would, uh, you know, we would talk about Danson and, and all the other leaders of the French revolution, Marat, Robespierre, I mean, it's the same. I mean, he saw all these questions in terms of uh, the leading personalities, as in Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution and in his own Black Jacobins. And what he used to say was, in any country at a given time, you only find a few political activists, the people who dedicate their life to political change. Maybe, you know, in a country like Britain, in, in between the wars, maybe 40,000 people. And he says, these are people for, who live for the possibility of change, especially change introduced by them. And he says, society would be impossible if everybody was like that. I mean, you can't keep scrapping everything, you know, all the time. He says, most people are, are not interested in that. All they want to do is to hold on to what they've got. And he says, this is a good thing. It's good that most human beings want to conserve what they have. Otherwise, there'd be no stability in society at all. But he says, even though most people are conservative in that sense, in revolutionary moments, they often change. And so the kind of characteristics that they had when they were, uh, when things that they, you know, they thought they had something to hold on to, are replaced with, uh, with more aggressive and positive uh, ideas. And he said, the, the thing that makes the difference is when they realize they've lost what they thought they had. I mean, you know, the issue is, have they got something to hold on to? If they have, they will. But then sometimes, in the middle of a period of dramatic change, they wake up and discover they haven't got it anymore. And at that point, they're open to uh, revolutionary ideas and practices. So the question is, how does that change take place? Because it's in that moment that the 40,000 or so many political activists become useful because they have been spending all the intervening period basically planning for and thinking about and hoping for uh, radical change and, 
And so at that point, people like him, political revolutionaries and activists, uh, can offer some kind of guidance and leadership uh, to the masses. Uh, and he used to give an example, a hypothetical example, but I don't think it was all that hypothetical. He said, you see this guy by the bus stop every morning going to work. I mean, uptight isn't in it. I mean, he's got a rolled umbrella, he's got a mat, he's got a bowler hat, uh, and he doesn't look at anybody, he doesn't talk to anybody, just catches the bus, goes to work. I mean, this is, you know, this is normal. And then, you know, in a revolutionary moment, you suddenly, you know, find this guy organizing the mailing campaign in the street committee. I mean, not everybody, but quite a significant number of people change their attitude. This is a revolutionary moment. And he spent a lot of his life studying this, and his hero in all of this was Lenin. Uh, now, Lenin is consistently misrepresented. Uh, the notion of a Leninist party is something that Lenin himself repudiated in the course of the Russian Revolution. I mean, you know, he used to say, before the revolution, I was just another bourgeois politician who thought that democratic centralism uh, as a principle for organizing a, part, a political party elected to a parliament was you know, the way forward. Said, as soon as I got off the train from, uh, the, at the Finland station, because he was in exile, he came back in 1917, he said, as soon as I got off the train in St. Petersburg, I saw the workers, uh, Soviets, and, and the, the, uh, the soldiers, Soviets, on the street. I knew that everything that I thought about uh, revolution was irrelevant. The Soviets was the Soviet is the word used for uh, spontaneous cooperatives organized by workers and soldiers in 1917 in Moscow, and uh, it was street committees, basically. And, uh, I mean, Lenin changed completely in, in the face of what the Russian Revolution was. He only lived another six years. He died in 1923. But he wrote a vast amount in that time, which was published very late, certainly in English. I mean, some of it was published in Russian quite quickly, then in German, but in English quite late. And James, when he went to America, formed a group called the Johnson Forest Tendency with a Russian woman called Raya Dunayevskaya and a, a, a Chinese-American who was a specialist in German called Grace Lee, who is still alive and is one of my Facebook friends. So. The thing is that, that James was Johnson and Donaeskaya was, was Forrest. And what they felt they brought to the revolution in North America was first of all, she had access to all of these unpublished writings in Russian of Lenin, which have been published now. James uh, had French, 
because of his study of the uh, Haitian Revolution, and Grace Lee had German. And uh, the idea was that by gaining access to revolutionary literature in these three other languages, they would be able to present a, a, a fuller version of what the American Revolution might be about. So, James gave a lecture in 1981 to uh, Californian students on the death of Walter Rodney. I've mentioned already that, that Rodney was uh, blown up by an agent provocateur whom he trusted. You can get anything you want of all this stuff on something called Marxists.org. It's uh, free, downloadable, everything, everything, by all these people, including quite a bit of James' stuff. James has a speech there where he said, you students, you don't have a clue what revolution is. You don't have a clue. And nor did uh, Walter Rodney. If he had, he wouldn't have gone in a car with a guy who was going to blow him up. I mean, he was the leader of the revolution. And, you know, the organizing committee, imagine, imagine, you know, Obama kind of walking into a car with a guy who's going to blow him up. It's not possible, is it? And what James is saying, you know, this is a war. You don't understand it. You don't, you know, you suspend the normal uh, uh, activities. And in the course of this speech, he refers to a piece by Lenin in... Uh, September 1917, and this is published on in on Marxists.org as Marxism and Insurrection or Insurgency. I'm not quite sure which. By the way, um, these are three essays on my website, which cover the material that I'm talking about today. This letter that Lenin wrote in September 1917 is extraordinary. I mean, I told you before that Trotsky's history of the Russian Revolution starts in February and ends in October, so it covers nine months of 1917, 1,300 pages. Uh, and this letter is an explanation by Lenin as to why, in July of that year, he recommended not joining the insurrection uh, and in September, he changed his mind. And he changed his mind in September against the recommendation and will of all the leading members of the Bolshevik party. He was the only one who thought that the big push was now, in September. And of course, the decisive revolutionary moment was October. So he's trying to explain what's the, the difference between July and September. And What's important, you know, for us as academics who are used to talking about uh, changes, gradual and long-term and so on, is that in these kinds of historical moments, I mean, hours or days make a huge difference. And so one of the challenges to us that I am uh, uh, attempting to address in this essay is, yeah, you know, the human economy program is you know, legitimately concerned with how can we develop economic 
organization from which people will benefit democratically more than they do at present. This means building things that last, building them slowly. But in revolutionary moments, change takes place very quickly. People tend to oscillate between dichotomous uh, choices, between this or that. Uh, we have very little room for nuance, if you like. And I call these uh, two approaches analog and digital. I mean, analog measures are continuous, but digital measures flip from A to B, from 1 to 0. What Lenin is trying to do is to distinguish between insurrection and revolution. What happened in, in Tahrir Square is an insurrection, it's not a revolution. What happened when Mohammed Bouazizi torched himself and released the uh, uh, systemic uh, street violence, uh, he provoked a popular insurrection. The consequences of which, whether they're revolutionary or not, will last for a long time. When the Berlin Wall came down, what's astonishing is that the largest and most coercive bureaucracy in the history of the planet collapsed with almost no uh, loss of human life in a very short time. And then, but even then, you know, we don't know whether that was a revolution or not. And you look at Putin, you think, well, the KGB is the one in the show, isn't it? Or, you know, when that happens, you look back at 1917 and say, well, did Russia actually become a secular country uh, governed by socialist principles after 1917? Perhaps not. Did, you know, Russian nationalism and Tsarism and the Orthodox Church get overthrown? Perhaps not. So the whole question of what a revolution is, is something that has to be assessed all the time. So. Lenin says in this letter, these are pretty vague conceptual ideas. He says three things have to, have to happen for an insurrection to become, or to have the chance of becoming a revolution. The first is that the people have to move en masse. There have to be people out there, you know, doing unusual things on the street, en masse. The second is there has to be a turning point where the, what he calls the advanced classes uh, make a decisive move to join this interaction. For him, you know, the advanced classes in the Russian Revolution were the soldiers and the industrial workers. But they don't have to be there. And the third one is that the enemy must vacillate. There must be a moment where the people you're trying to topple weaken and don't really know uh, what they're going to do next. And, I mean, the biggest thing that happened between July and September is that Russia pulled out of the war. They pulled out of the First World War. And the soldiers started coming back. This is the big difference. And in the face of that, the ruling class was much more uncertain than they had been before, even as, uh, uh, as recently as the summer. And certain key elements with a program, as it were, of radical social change 
were mobilized to a degree that they had not been before. Now I realize that this is very uh, vague, okay. but this is the kind of thing that revolutionary thinkers and historians like James uh, think about and read and write about. I've been drawn to thinking about this by the events of 2011 and 12, which included some really quite dramatic uh, series of events. I mean, the, the Arab Spring, uh, Occupy Wall Street, the London riots, Los uh, Indignados uh, in Madrid, the massive student uh, uprising in Chile, in Santiago, led by a 23-year-old woman. I mean, these things were going on in all kinds of places, but the place which seemed to be the most uh, decisive was North Africa and the Middle East. Occupy Wall Street, I think, has its international significance as opposed to its domestic significance from the fact that when they moved in New York, people in the Mediterranean realized that the American monolith was not as monolithic as it seemed. They saw Americans going up against uh, their government, and, uh, and, and, and so it was a, I mean, I don't know if you recall, but Occupy Wall Street started and there was a, a, a kind of global demonstration, an Occupy movement that was global, I mean, in which hundreds of demonstrations of some significance took place in cities all over the world, including, you know, Cape Town in South Africa. I mean, when all of this happens, and who knows what, you know, how the Libyan war and the Syrian war are going to uh, work out. But what struck me from the beginning was that uh, 1989 took place in Eastern Europe, which is Western Europe's eastern periphery, and 2011 took place in North Africa, which is Europe's uh, southern periphery, Mediterranean periphery. And I felt that the, I think there's something going on in Europe's decline and the fact that the regions immediately uh, uh, on its borders are, are rising up, if you like, against the American Empire in one way or another. I think all of this is significant, but we can't really make a lot of sense of it. But what I know is that James is right, that when things are on the move and people have lost a lot of what they were clinging to before, uh, what they're willing to consider and what they're not changes quite quickly. And that those of us in academia who, who are working for gradual reformist economic change or whatever, have to take these events into, into, into refugee. Think about this possibility. We also have to think about the possibility of widespread war. And, you know, the, 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 I mean, the fact is that the world we're living in is 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 really the governments uh, can't solve uh, problems because they are national and the problems are global. Uh, the corporations are global, but they're kind of working out there, more or less free of control. It's very difficult to see how the problems that have been 
released uh, since the financial crisis will be solved peacefully. And you know, it's not that I take any great pleasure in, in prophesying world war. But I, you know, I, mean, I think at the very least, we should have a public debate which considers that as a possibility unless we take stronger measures that are being taken at the present. And I think the fundamental reason why we are not is because most people have actually lost quite a little, not very much so far. I mean, you know, I think of my parents' generation who, who fought a world war and fascism. I mean, you know, most of us have been living off uh, what they made. Different varies from place to place. Okay, so the question that we have to ask, you know, is are we living through a period of war and revolution? I mean, are these uh, first stirrings in Europe's periphery uh, a sign of more, of stronger things to come? I mean, you know, I mean, you may or may not pick up through the national media that, you know, Japanese fishermen are taking on Chinese warships over some shitty little island that they both claim in the South China Sea. And you may have heard the expression, but not recall it so close. I mean, you know, there's something called the shot that was heard around the world. This is when some Serbian nationalist assassin shot the uh, Archduke the Austrian Archduke in 1918, and within a matter of weeks, all the major powers were at each other's throat in that horrible war. So, you know, there are people, there are enough dangerous loonies out there that can provoke another one. You just have to hope, you know, that Obama doesn't want a sea war in Asia, or uh, that they are serious about getting out of Afghanistan and Pakistan or that the balloon doesn't go up with nuclear weapons somewhere, or that the Israelis don't attack Iran. I mean, it doesn't take a lot. And, you know, we're talking about whether the financial crisis of 2007-8 uh, takes us back to the 1930s or, or when, and, and, you know, I think we should ask, is it taking us back to 1914? Because that's the last time that three decades of financial imperialism ended, and within a matter of months, uh, the world was at war. So, you can probably read about uh, what I have to say on the Second American Revolution. I mean, the question is, is the Arab Spring the beginning of the Second Revo American Revolution? And if you say, well, America, Egypt isn't America, I think you're mistaken. I mean, it wasn't the Russians that brought down the Soviet Empire. It was the Germans and the Czechs. You know, and the Egyptians, I mean, there's also a very significant uh, question of whether, I mean, what is Egypt's relationship to Africa? I mean, ever since Nasser, I mean, Nasser made Egypt the, the leading line and the a uh, uh, pan-Arabist movement. But Egypt is a very important part of Africa also. You don't have to be Sheikh Antajok to know that. 
And you don't just have to think about football, you know, World Cup elimination uh, competitions. So it's clear enough to me that, that the Middle East is intrinsic to the American Empire. I mean, in the 19th century, the British annexed India, and Britain and India together formed the superstate. Well, the Middle East and its oil and America have formed a superstate since at least the 1970s. I mean, first of all, the Americans used the Israelis to uh, discipline the area, and then they uh, allowed the Saudis to control the distribution of oil. But when they invaded Iraq, they were tearing up that version of events. They could no longer deal with the Middle East through intermediaries. I mean, the invasion of Iraq, whatever else it was about, was about installing large amounts of military power in the Middle East. And uh, you, know, you can't understand the Afghanistan war. Uh, war. I mean, <laughs> it clearly isn't about bringing democracy to tribesmen. I mean, the central point about AFPAC, Afghanistan and Pakistan, is that three of the countries that most threaten American hegemony, India, China, and Russia, are on its borders. And not to mention the whole of the Muslim world who carry the can for this conflict. So, uh, these, these are questions, you know, I, I mean, we don't have to discuss them all the time, but we should be discussing them some of the time. And James thought of very little else. And that's what I learned from him. I'm not a revolutionary, and I sure as hell don't want to be involved in the war. That's why I've got an apartment on the beach in Durban, you know. <laughs> Sit it out. Wait for the mushroom cloud to drift south. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, that we, 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 you know, I think we may be entering times in which revolutionary change becomes more significant for our deliberations than it has been uh, for much of the recent decades. Thank you.